How are you guys this morning? It's good to see you. Welcome to Legacy. We're happy that you're here. Welcome to our family. This is our favorite family gathering every single Sunday. Uh, We get together. uh, We gather around Jesus, who how many of you guys know is a full meal every Sunday, and uh, we connect with one another. So today, you're actually here on a very special Sunday, and the reason for that is because we are doing our second installment of our sermon series on family. So you've been hearing this word a lot. I know you've been hearing it, family, 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 and it's something that we've been saying for quite some time, and I want you guys to know right up front, this is not a marketing ploy. We are not saying family because we're trying to build a brand. We are saying family because we feel with everything in us that this is what is on God's heart for the church in this generation. And we don't always get it right. We get it wrong often, but we're going to keep declaring it. We're going to keep praying into it and do our best to practice it every day. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to 1 Timothy 3 and 15. I'm going to read the second portion of verse 15 to start, and I'm going to read from the God's Word translation. So you probably don't have one of those in your back pocket, uh, but it is on the app. So if you pull up the Bible app or uh, BibleHub.com, they have it. All right. So how many guys are ready to read it together? It's awesome. All right. So got it here up on the screen, and I would love it if we could all read it out loud together. All right. God's family is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. How many of you guys think that's good? Yeah. Let me read it again. God's family is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Everybody said amen. amen. So uh, subject today is God's idea of church. That's the title of the message today, God's Idea of Church. So let's pray together. Father, right now, we just submit ourselves to you. Could we, as a a community, just yield all together to the Holy Spirit? God, we ask that you would define family for us, that we would not come with our, um, what is it, presupposed, presuppositions, preconceived, You guys got it. Help me preach this morning, Holy Ghost. That we would not come with our preconceived ideas or notions. That we would just lay down on the altar and we say, God, here we are. It's an acceptable sacrifice to you. That's what you said. And so we give ourselves to you and your definition for our lives as individuals and as a community. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said again, Amen. amen. So what do we recognize here from the reading of this scripture? We recognize something right off the bat, which is God's idea of church is family. You guys just say that with me. God's idea of church is family. Now, we can all intellectually say amen to that. We can say that out loud. We can agree with that because in our hearts, we believe that it's true. But in our experience... Could we go there this morning? But in our experience, I would say that it is extremely rare to be a part of a church community and for the church itself to function as a family and feel like a home. Unfortunately, 
That's extremely rare. You know, I was just talking to somebody in between services, and they were telling me that they had a friend who really wants to find community but simply cannot find family in the church as we know it. And um, I'm heartbroken by that. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Obviously, you come to church on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're here as a last-ditch effort thinking, maybe I'll find family in this place. You know, I, I can't seem to find it anywhere. And I get that. If that's where you are today, I want you to know as a pastor, I totally validate your experience. Because for so long, we really haven't functioned as a family, as the church in America. For the most part, we've functioned as an institution or an organization or a business or a brand. And so everything that we do is evaluated by the impact it will have on our influence. Rather than connecting ourselves in a deeply rich way to Christ's great commandment and Christ's great commission and just living it. I mean, what if that's what church was like? What if church was really family? What if, I mentioned this last week, but what if, you know, a Bible washed up on the shoreline of a deserted island where somebody was living and they found it and read it and then they got rescued and they came to church? What do you think they would expect church to be like? They'd walk in thinking, this is going to be great. I've been in isolation for all these years, and I'm about to step into a warm, loving community that I expect to be like family. But what might be their experience? I mean, just share yours. What, what has your experience been like? You know? And, and I want to get real about this. Honestly, I do. I want to get real about this because I want to see us be whole and I want to see us function as a family in the same way that Jesus intended for us to do life together when he planted his church. That's what I want to see. And to be honest, sharing this with you guys, I'm a little bit nervous about it. I'll be real. I'll be authentic. I'll be honest. I feel a little bit nervous about it and not for your sake, but for my own. I'll be honest with you. I know what I'm going to share today is going to be slightly challenging. Maybe not for everybody, but it will be for me. And when we start talking about family and not just doing a sermon series, but actually doing a lifestyle, that's a little scary because we may all need to give some things up in order to function more healthily as a whole. And I don't know if I'm ready to do that yet. Right? I, I mean, I, I'm just saying what I think some of y'all are thinking and what I'm feeling, right? Like, really? Like, really do family? Right? I mean, we believe, I think we all believe, that this is truly Jesus' intention for his bride, that we would function not just as an organization, but truly as a family, where we would really be that way. But even though we can acknowledge that and say that that's true, so many so many people don't have that experience, and by and large, that's not really the normal culture of church here. Why is that? The reason for that is something that I actually made mention of last week, which is a cultural reality that social scientists call radical individualism. Everybody say radical, radical. individualism. Now, this is the culture that we live in. It's not just America. It's Western society as a whole. 
This is the prevailing way of doing life in our current cultural moment. This is the way we think of how we traverse through our lives. It's mostly about me. It's mostly about my ambition. It's mostly about my goals. It's mostly about my preferences. Rather than it being about the preferences, goals, ambitions, or feelings of the group, of the family, of the church, it's all about me. This is the culture that we live in, right? So let me define this for you. Radical individualism is the belief that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, be it church or family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of any group. Unfortunately, radical individualism has affected our entire way of viewing faith and church. It truly has affected it. We don't go to church for God and his family. We go to church for me and my family. Right? That, it's not that we're bad people. Don't, I'm not trying to like stomp your toes. I'm telling you, this is the culture in which we live. We, we come to church for me and my family. We, we don't typically go to church for God and his family. That's just not the way it works in our culture currently. That's the reason why we can go to church, attend a church, engage in church to some extent, but then make no friends. Just, you know, we're more talkative in the line to get a latte, you know, than we are after the worship when somebody says, greet your neighbor. Well, I ain't here for them. You know, I'm here for me. What I'm telling you is this is the presence of radical individualism. Church is not a place that we go to give. Church is a place, by and large, that we go to get. We get information, inspiration, revelation, and motivation, all for the purpose of our dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment. That is why we go to church. Is it it getting too real too quick? My bad, guys. I should have gave a disclaimer. It's a rated R sermon for real. For real people. Who want to do a real family, right? And uh, I think this is the reason why that church attendance is so much more sporadic these days. Because we do not feel that our lack of church attendance affects anybody but us. Because we think, well, what does it matter? I can listen to the podcast, you know. I can watch a sermon on YouTube. You know, I'll get back to it eight to ten weeks when I'm feeling up for it. And, you know, you might say to yourself, well, I'm not missing anything. Yeah, but we are. We're missing you. We're missing you. We're missing your voice. And we need you to sing in moments like we had today because when your voice is not present but you're a member of the family, the harmony's off. Because 
You are so important. You are so beautiful. You are so unique. You are so creative that if you don't add your flavor to the mix, it just don't taste as well. Just something's off about it. It's just not right. And we need you to contribute your gift. We need you to contribute your song, your poem, your masterpiece, your life, who you are, your perspective, your opinion. It's not you that gets robbed when you miss church. It's me. It's us. Because I don't get a chance to disagree with you. I don't get a chance to pray with you. I don't get a chance to hear about what's going on in your heart and how that could affect my journey through life. So even if you're not coming to church to, you know, give anything, just think about that. You're constantly giving things away as you interact with the body. Maybe somebody needs to hear about your problem in this season of your life so that they could get through the problem in this season in their life. We think that for ourselves, problems mean punishment. But for other people, your problem just reveals someone else's promise. And they just open the door. There it is. Oh, I never saw it like that. You did. Okay, I can do that. Are you guys with me this morning? This, this is the body. We, we, we surround our, you know, we surround Jesus, but we share with one another. And your pain could release me into my promise. You guys get anything out of this today? When you're not here, you can't contribute. And the church needs everyone to play their part. That's family. It may sound extreme for us today, but it would not have been extreme for first century Christians. I meet with a lot of people over coffee. And there's three primary anxieties that Christians have in my experience. You guys are on the edge of your seats, aren't you? They are vocation, location, and spouse. These three things cause us to fret more than just about anything else. Location, where am I going to live? Vocation, what's the career path that I'm going to take? And spouse, who the heck am I supposed to marry? Here's what's interesting about this. The scriptures are relatively silent on all three of these topics. The Bible does not outright tell you where to live. The Bible does not outright tell you what job to do. And the Bible, unfortunately, does not outright tell you who to marry. It's a bummer, isn't it? It'd be great if it was that easy. But that's not the case. That's not the way it works. Why is that? Because the cultural context of the scriptures is that we do not decide where we're going to live, what job we have, and who we're going to marry outside the context of Christian community. When we try to decide, hey, where am I going to live, what job am I going to take, and who am I going to marry, we go and lock ourselves up in a closet of isolation, and we try to figure out the solution as best we can on our own with the Bible and a few podcasts, only to emerge when we feel like we have the answer instead of immersing ourselves in community and allowing a conversation to cultivate a solution 
that benefits more people than me. Well, hey, I've emerged from the closet. I've got this great solution. Great. Who else gets blessed? Well, me. (laughs) But what about the fam? (laughs) It don't matter. What do they care? No, you're robbing them from the blessing that is you. This is the culture in which we live. But this isn't the culture in which Jesus lived. I can tell you right now, Jesus lived in something called a strong group society. Jesus and his followers lived in this kind of culture. And in a strong group society, the needs of the group always take top priority over the needs of the individual. For somebody living in Jesus' world, there was no more group that was, well, there's no group that was any more important than the family. This is why the New Testament uses the metaphor of family so often to portray to us how Christians are supposed to relate to one another. Praise the Lord, brother. You ever heard that? Y'all didn't grow up in church like me, huh? Praise the Lord, sister. See, we think of these things as being religious designations that we say to one another because they're polite. But Jesus saw them, first century Christians saw them as a real, tangible manifestation of God's family in the earth, a community of surrogate siblings that treated one another differently than just people they sat next to when they went to church every six weeks. They sold their possessions. They traded in their houses. Did you guys read that in Acts 4? Now that's tough. That's tough. But that was the context in which Jesus lived. Today we live in a weak group society. And our culture, by comparison to first century Israel, is drastically different. Now, I needed to employ some help in order to portray just how extremely different these two cultures are, our culture and Jesus' culture in the first century of Israel. And so I decided to come up with an allegory, and uh, that is Titanic. I know this doesn't make sense yet. But how many of you guys saw the movie Titanic? Quite a few of you guys have seen that, I know. It's a pretty good movie. I think this was the first movie that I ever cried during. You know, I think I was like 12, watching it in my granny's living room. Nobody was around, so nobody saw the tear. You know, it's sad, man. It's an intense movie. And, uh, you know, Titanic's actually the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. Did you guys know that? I mean, this is a popular movie. It is so popular, in fact, that last week I was walking through H&M, and this is what they were selling. I thought, this is a cultural phenomenon. Is it 18 bucks? What's wrong with them people? $18 for an iron-on? I'm playing. I wear. I, I got a shirt on. This shirt's from H and M right here. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm bewildered, right? I'm like, man, Titanic is so popular. Why is Titanic so popular? So I employed the help of Titanic to try and create 
this uh, major difference in culture between our culture and Jesus' culture. And so despite all the stunning effects of Titanic and just how awesome it was from a cinematic perspective, the real reason that we love Titanic is not because of the special effects. We love Titanic because of the love story. Between Jack, the scrappy street kid, who has somehow made it onto the boat as the result of winning a boarding pass through a poker game. This is exactly the kind of stories that we love. And on the other side, you have Rose, right? He jacks the underdog. And then you've got Rose. Rose is from the upper crust of society. She is wealthy. She is well-to-do, right? And Jack and Rose end up meeting each other one night, you know, on the, on the boat. How many of you guys remember that scene? You know, can reenact it during the altar call. <laughs> right? And, 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 and they fall in love, which is interesting, but it's what happens. And uh, there's just one problem, though. There's one major problem. The problem here is that Rose is actually engaged to be married to someone of a similar social stratum, right? So he is rich, wealthy, socially influential, but there's only one problem. He is obnoxious, and he's arrogant, and he's mean-spirited, and he doesn't really seem like the type of person that Rose should marry. However, Rose's mother pulls her to the side, and this is a scene that often goes unnoticed. Rose's mother pulls her to the side, and she says, listen, I know that he's arrogant. I know that he's obnoxious, but listen, you've got to marry him. Here's why. You know that your father has passed away. And he spent all of the family's money. And so you need to marry this man despite how obnoxious he might be because our wealth, our status, our inheritance, our extended family's well-being is tied up in this relationship. And so despite your interest, I know how handsome Leonardo DiCaprio is, particularly at that age. I mean, he's very handsome. He's very handsome. But this is not good for the family, Rose. This is not good for the whole, Rose. This is not good for the community, Rose. This is not good for our finances, Rose. This is not good for our future, Rose. And we as people from a weak group society, as westernized, radical individualists, we sit on the edge of our seat and we say, leave the jerk, Rose. Flush him. He's terrible. Forget the family fortune. Who cares about money? Who cares about your extended family's well-being? Who cares about any of that? If you've got to, uh, you know, endure that kind of hard work to stay in relationship, you got to leave that guy. Go to Jack. Right? That's what we're thinking, right? Well, we all know the story, right? What ends up happening? She picks Jack. And as Americans, we love this. And then unfortunately, at one point in time at the end of the movie, the part where I cried when I was 12, she lets Jack die by not sharing. I got a slide right here. It proves that there was plenty of space. There was plenty of space in the door. 
<laughs> Rose's radical individualism ended up getting the best of her. Instead of sharing a lifeline with her short-term requited love, she saved herself. And Jack drowned. As he falls through the water, right? And it's so sad. I mean, my mom went to the theater to watch this three times. No joke. It was so popular. It was such a great movie. And the way that we see it is that we're emotional. We celebrate. We cry. We rejoice. We enjoy it. We, I mean, who doesn't like Leo, right? So it's like, it's such a great movie. And for us, it's awesome. As a weak group society, it's amazing. But if you were watching this film, sitting next to some first century Jews, you would be shocked by the way they would respond to the same film. They would be throwing vegetables at the screen. They would be so mad. They would be just so offended by the fact that Rose would even consider leaving this obnoxious fiancé who had the ability to bless her extended family and maintain the family's wealth and social status to leave for herself to go talk to Jack. You would have been, you would have witnessed an audience that was in an upheaval. They would have been so disgusted by the notion that Rose would do something for herself and not for the whole. That is the radical difference that we see in a weak group society and in a strong group culture. Did Titanic help you guys understand it? But this is, the way that it is in Jesus' context, the way that he is, everyone always deferred their needs for the group. Never did the needs of the individual take top priority. We are individualists. Our personal goals and individual satisfaction take first priority when we make critical life decisions, especially the three that I mentioned. The people of Jesus' world, however, had a different perspective. The group always took priority. Now, I want you to understand something is that we could easily say, okay, that was a great little lesson, Lyle. Thank you so much for that. You've examined some cultural context, and uh, you showed us what it might be like for first century Jews living in Palestine. But, you know, we're Americans today, and things have gotten better, and that would be controlling and extremely oppressive. And I don't know why anybody would make decisions on behalf of the whole when you could make a decision that would be better for yourself. Well, what you have to understand is that this was not only Jesus' context. Making decisions that benefited the whole for the sake of the family became Jesus' mission. It was not just his culture. It was his mission. Because God's idea of church is a family. And when he start, started talking about church and he started talking about brothers and sisters and he started talking about friends and moms and dads and what he was planting and what he was building, this is exactly what his followers felt. They did not run to the end of that idea of church and think he must be referring to a weak group that only looks out for themselves, for their own dreams, and for their own goals. They knew that Jesus talked about family as a strong group that demonstrated absolute passionate loyalty for one another. That is what they understood. Now, for me personally, uh, I feel this way about my wife and my kids. Anybody else in here? Amen. Like you're like, I'll make decisions on behalf of the whole before I'll make decisions on behalf of myself. Anybody else know what I'm talking about, right? Hashtag family first, right? I mean, that's the culture in which we live. 
But you know what's interesting is that despite the fact that we say that, so oftentimes we don't live that. You know the first place I learned about family? It wasn't church. It was in gang culture. Before, before I was living for Jesus. That's the first place I ever learned about family. And I, I will never forget it. We were riding up to a Burger King, me and my friend Mike, who's in prison today. We were, we, we were riding up, and, and, and he said, hey, man, what you want? I said, I'm good. Separate order. I'll order. Separate order. He's like, no, nah, man, I got you. What you want? I was so shocked that somebody was willing to buy my cheeseburger because I was living on the street as an orphan. And when you're an orphan, you don't share with each other. Right? You don't make any decisions on behalf of the whole. It's all for you. Right? I said, no, nah, man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'll buy my own thing. He said, hey, man, no lie. That's what he said. No lie. That's what he said. He said, hey, man, how am I going to call you my brother if I can't buy you a burger? And I said, okay, well, I'll take a number nine, the original uh, chicken sandwich. And, and no lie. I'll never forget, man. Every time I get off the phone with Mike, he say, hey, so weird to me in that culture. I love you. Every time. Hey. I love you. You're my brother. And so it's crazy for somebody who gets saved out of that lifestyle to come into the church and not experience the same degree of commitment. But unfortunately, it happens all the time. And I hear stories about it happening all the time where people running with a street gang display more loyalty and commitment to one another than people who sit together at church. That's where I learned about family. So there's moments of astonishment when I see people make decisions on behalf of themselves without any consideration for the whole. But this whole family first thing with, you know, my four and no more, this was something that Jesus came to stretch. There was no group more important than the family in first century Palestine. But Jesus came to stretch this definition. He came to say, okay, this commitment, this loyalty, this discipline, uh, you know, this connection that you have with your natural family, this is something that I want to stretch because this is the type of relationship, that relationship that you have with your wife and your kids, this is the type of relationship that I want you to have with the people of God. Now, I know, I, I, I get it, right? You're like, mm, I don't know about that, Lyle. That's a, little, that's a little crazy. I don't know what you're talking about here. But I want you to remember... That in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35, it says this. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, I want you to imagine for a second today, me up here preaching, teaching, sharing the gospel, and somebody runs in and says, Hey, Lyle, your mom is outside. You know, my mom lives in Kentucky, two hours away. Hey, your three little brothers, they're outside, and they need to speak to you. Can you imagine, like, how dishonoring that it would be for me to be like, no, I'm good, I'm, you know, doing ministry? Right? That would be dishonoring. Could we all agree with that? But that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said, who are my mother? Who is my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those sitting around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Get this last part. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. How crazy is that? 
The way that we see our primary, immediate family is the way that Jesus wants us to see God's family. This is God's idea of church. Jesus came to establish a new model of community. Jesus came to establish a new new context for family because this is how his church functions. Family is the framework. Family is the framework. He says that if you're a Christian, family now goes beyond your natural family. If you are a disciple of Jesus, your family is now everyone that does the will of God. Those that do the will of God are your parents, they're your siblings, they're your family. They are no longer just people that you go to church with. And that's how you're called to like really see them. Let's go. But to Jesus. Let's go. But to Jesus, receiving somebody as a brother or a sister was never a positional thing. And that's the way that we think about it today, isn't it? You know, I mentioned earlier, like, praise the Lord, brother. Right? We give somebody a hug. Hey, brother. It's good to see you. Because, see, we intellectually can agree with it. Well, yeah, I know positionally we're all under the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's my brother. That's my sister. Theologically, I understand. We're one body, one flesh. We're a big family. This is church. Like, I acknowledge that intellectually. But the way that Jesus talked about family was not just positional. It was relational. He he expected it to change our behavior, not just change our ideas. Oh, yeah, it's family. Okay, it's great. Awesome. No, no, I expect this to change your behavior. I expect this to change the way that you relate to one another. I expect this to be the way that you share with one another. I expect this to be the way that you connect with one another. What Jesus came to do was close the gap between natural and spiritual family. And in a culture where radical individualism is alive and thriving, we somehow have disconnected our commitment to God and our commitment to the people of God. But to Jesus, they were the exact same. Are you guys getting this? We, we're thinking, we're like, hey, you know, my commitment to God is one thing. That's over here. But then my commitment to the people of God, that's another thing. But Jesus saw it as all one thing. If you were committed to God, you were committed to the people of God. And that is the way that he created and established his church. That separation would have been impossible. To the early church, read Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. To the early church, that separation is impossible. A commitment to God was a commitment to the people of God. This was so powerful and profound, so real and the lived out experience of so many in the early church that Cyprian of Carthage, which is an African saint, he said, he who does not have the church for his mother cannot have God for his father. And he wasn't, he didn't come up with that to try to get more people to come on Sundays. He was just saying, this is, this is how it is. This is life. This is church. This is what it is. And to say that a different way, you could say it. He who does not have God's children as his brothers and sisters does not have God for his father. And I know a lot of people say, I love God. You know you know how love of God is proven? Love of neighbor. Right? How is love of God proven? Love of neighbor. 
That's how it's proven. If you love your brother who you can see, but you claim to love God who you cannot see, then love is not in you and you're a liar. That's what John said. That's scripture, right? Love of God is proven in love of neighbor. So if you don't, if we don't, if I don't love you, what does that say about my love towards God? And love looks like something. It's not like, hey, praise the Lord, brother. Hey, call me if you need me, but don't actually call me because I'm not going to answer. You know, like, hey, you know, I'm praying for you, but I'm not really praying for you, but I said it, so it sounds good. So see you later. Right? Love for God is proven through love and neighbor. You know, how do you prove love and neighbor? Love of enemy. That's how you prove it. Do you really love your neighbor? Well, do you pray for those who persecute you? Do you exchange their assault with affection? If we're, if we're truly going to pursue going after family, these are the things that are required. And I understand that the steep, that the hill is steep, but that's because it's, this is our culture. And to some extent, we've got to detox a little bit from the world as we know it and, and take hold of God's kingdom as he shares it. Jesus came to establish a different kingdom, not just a different religion. It affects how we live. It affects how we connect. It affects how we forgive. It affects how we talk. It affects how we share. It affects our relationships. Um, how many of you guys, somebody's ever asked you, uh, have you received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Uh, a personal Lord and Savior is not biblical. A personal Lord and Savior is not biblical. Now, I'm not saying God can't be your personal Lord and Savior. I'm telling you, you just can't find it in the Scriptures. You, you'll have a hard time. If you go looking for this idea of a personal Lord and Savior, you will not be able to find it in the Bible. Why is that? Because Jesus never intended to be your personal, individualistic, weak, low group, all about you, Savior. Now, we've turned him into that, but Jesus never defined loyalty to God through a low-group, individualistic, personal relationship. This is not a biblical phrase. You'll never find this language in Scripture. And Jesus, and I, I want to throw this out there because it's important, Jesus also never defined loyalty to the church as loyalty to an organization. Now, I want to throw that out there because I think it's important that you know that as legacy, we are all about the global church. And if you don't like this expression of church, just find another. Just be in community. This is the way Jesus defined church. A daily, tangible expression of unswerving love to God's family of surrogate siblings who called him Abba. Anybody who does the will of God, anybody who's a Christian, anybody who is a brother or sister, he expected us to relate and live that out. Which is why we see the radical community that we see in Acts 4. I mean, can you imagine if that happened? Like, I don't know that our, I don't, I think our church would like so downsize. 
If we were like, hey, let's live Acts 4. <laughs> It'd be like four people. <laughs> right? Because it would get so, it would be so hard. Hey, you know, share. Hey, let's share. And, and then the first person would like, you know, sell their house or, you know, and give the money to the poor, you know, donate a car to a single mom who doesn't have transportation. I mean, those things we get, we accept. But when you start talking about giving things that actually hurt, giving things that actually cost us something, actually sowing seeds, right? Tithing, tithing is not generosity. Tithing is just returning to God what's already his, right? It's not, it's not really a seed unless it, it hurts a little bit, you know what I'm saying? You know, but like, what if we did that? How many people would be like, nah, you know, I'm not called to that. You know what I'm saying? Because we just, we just, and, that, and in some sense, that's what we've done. I, I feel some fear saying that, but I, I, in some sense, that's what we've done. We just created a different, a different Christianity. We just, we just created a new one. That was, that was inconvenient. Share, I need to amass, right? Be gentle, I need to be angry, you know? Like, it's it's just, you guys get what I'm saying? So, like, I, I, I'm preaching this with, like, really open hands, right? Because I'm doing my best to lean into what I feel like God wants to speak to our church. And I'm doing my best to articulate his heart. And I want to do my best to lean into what God's asked us to do. But when the early church did what Jesus told them to do, what happened? Millions were saved. Millions of people were saved, and that was before airlines. Right? Nations were affected by the gospel, and that was before the internet. It's because the way that they lived was such a divine challenge to the world as it is. It created an insatiable hunger for community in God's way. It created an insatiable thirst for the blood of Jesus Christ to have their sins washed away and to have connection in real community. They watched the early church and they said, man, that is death defying. You could lose your job. You could lose your status. You could lose your life. But I so want to be a part of it because what you guys have is worth walking away from everything for. And for better or worse, the Roman Empire created Christianity as their state religion because it was so successful the way in which the church did life together. And we could, we could go there because <laughs> that's when the church started to get tamed down a little bit. started to... Right? So I'm just telling you, this is... We as a prophetic people are supposed to be a community that is a divine challenge to the world as it is. To the individualism, the radical, it's me and my own. It's all about me and my dreams. Like we just live a different way. I, I, I don't believe that Jesus went to the cross just because it was his dream and his goal. But he went to the cross for you and for us. Right? Jesus didn't go to the cross thinking, I'm going to be so famous one day. If I do this, if I do this, I'm going to be so well known. You, you guys get what I'm saying here? And you think about how many of the decisions that we make day in and day out. 
that are disconnected entirely from the people that we say we care about most. All I'm saying is I think God has an upgrade for us. Do you guys agree? Yo, I don't, I'm, I'm admitting to you publicly I don't know how to do this. I just want us to lean into it. I don't want it to be a sermon series. Could this not be a sermon series? Would that be cool? Could this not be a sermon series? Could it just be like, hey, can we try this out?